As I said, we'll be expounding this morning the first line of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray in connection with that, and especially in connection with that word, our. Let's read also from Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of of twain one new man, so making peace." And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. If you take out your Psalters and turn in the back of the Psalter to page 25, You'll find Lord's Day 46 of the Heidelberg Catechism that explains to us that first line of the Lord's Prayer. Remember, we are in the third section of the Catechism, our life of gratitude to Jehovah God. We pray out of gratitude to Him who's redeemed us in the bond that He has established with us. And our Lord Jesus teaches us to pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven. Lord's Day 46. Why hath Christ commanded us to address God thus, our Father? That immediately, in the very beginning of our prayer, he might excite in us a childlike reverence for and confidence in God, which are the foundation of our prayer. Namely, that God has become our Father in Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of him in true faith then our parents will refuse us earthly things. Why is it here added, which art in heaven? Lest we should form any earthly conceptions of God's heavenly majesty, and that we may expect from his almighty power all things necessary for soul and body. 
Beloved of God, this morning, following the lead of the Heidelberg Catechism, we begin a detailed examination of the Lord's Prayer. From the point of view of the history of Christ's church, it is not an unusual thing that we examine the Lord's Prayer following the teaching of a catechism. From the earliest days of the apostolic church, the Lord's Prayer has been used in catechisms to teach God's people the principles of prayer. The catechisms at the time of the Reformation all had this, but even before that, even through the Middle Ages and going all the way back to the early church, this has been the case. The Heidelberg Catechism here carries on a venerable, honored practice in the history of Christ's church. It teaches us the Lord's Prayer in seven different Lord's Days, seven sections, by dividing the Lord's Prayer into three parts. First, it points out there is an address. That's what we're looking at this morning. That's an address to God, our Father who art in heaven. Second, there are six petitions that we pray in the Lord's Prayer. And then third, there is a doxology at the end. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So the Lord's Prayer teaches us, first of all, with that address, that there ought to be a starting out of our prayers in a proper way. There must be a kind of an address we give to God before we jump into the things that we want to say to him. You wouldn't just walk up to the President of the United States and give him no address and just start talking. So too, we don't come before the presence of God and just stream of conscience, just start blabbering. We must begin by addressing him and addressing him in a proper way. The importance of that is that that address reveals the attitude of our heart towards him, reveals how we are approaching him, and really governs the whole rest of our prayer. If your child comes up to you, my child comes up to me, and addresses me improperly, hey, Corey, how you doing? I'm going to scold them. Because it reveals a certain attitude of the heart. The way they're approaching me is not right. There's no sense of father-child relationship here. How they address me is going to govern everything that comes out of their mouth next. So too, how we address God in prayer is significant. It tells us what we think about him. It tells him what we think about him. And it sets the tone for everything else we're going to say and the way we're going to say it. And gloriously, the address that our Savior taught us to make to God when we begin our prayers is this. Our Father who art in heaven. When you pray, he said, say, our Father who art in heaven. Pray as one who comes with an attitude of reverence and respect for he is in heaven and yet one before whom you know you have access as a child of a great father. 
Let's examine that this morning under the theme, praying to our Father in heaven. Praying to our Father in heaven. We're going to notice first, who He is. Second, He is ours. And third, having Him. Praying to our Father in heaven. Who He is, He is ours. And having Him. Who He is. Let's notice first that when the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray, He teaches us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, and not our Mother, who art in heaven. Sadly, in our day, this needs to be pointed out. Recently, a Bible translation came out that is not a translation really at all, that has this line of the Lord's Prayer in Luke and in Matthew and in Mark this way. Our Father slash Mother who art in heaven. It's called the Inclusive Bible. In other places, it refers to God as Heavenly Father slash Heavenly Mother. These argue that the Bible was produced by a patriarchal society male chauvinist group of people, and since we are more inclusive in this day and age, we must now evolve in the way that we think about God and change how the Bible speaks of God. These deny the inspiration of Scripture, deny that the Bible is God's own self-revelation, that he's telling us who he is. They say that the Scriptures are time-bound, culture-bound, And so instead of receiving the scriptures as God's infallible inspired word, they seek to change God's word to fit in with the godless and confused age in which we live. Everywhere in sacred scripture, including here in the Lord's Prayer, God speaks of himself and others speak of God as masculine. The Greek word here in our Father who art in heaven is pater, means father and can mean nothing else. God is masculine. He is a father. He's not, of course, male in the sense of biologically male. God is a spirit. He doesn't have any biology. He has no physical aspects to his masculineness. Nonetheless, he is masculine. That's not to say that there aren't places in the Scriptures where God compares an aspect of his character to the character of a female. A mother, for example. There are a few places he does that. Isaiah 46, verse 3. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried by me from the womb. There, God is comparing his care for Israel to the care of a mother. But that's very different from God saying, I am a female. That never happens in Scripture. And those few times where the Bible, where God himself compares an aspect of his character to feminine characteristics is the same type of thing that the Apostle Paul is doing in Galatians 4, verse 19. 
Remember, we saw this in our series on the book of Galatians not that long ago, where Paul compares himself to a mother. My little children, speaking to the Galatians, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Paul is comparing his love for the Galatians to a love for to the love of a mother for his children. But nobody concludes from that that Paul is calling himself a female and now we better start calling Paul the Apostle Paul and slash the Apostle let Paul. So too with God. Though he has characteristics comparable to motherly tenderness and other characteristics that females in the kingdom have been remade into In the image of God, he is Father. That affects how we approach him in prayer. That affects the the attitude we have as we come to him, as we address him. He's Father. There's headship here. There's lordship here. He's not mother who must submit really to our rule. But he's Father before whom we submit as head of this family, this household that we are a part of. He's Father. When he reveals himself as Father, he's revealing one of the deepest aspects about himself to us. If someone would ask you, who is God? What would you say? There's all kinds of things you could think of. He's he's the creator. He's the the ruler, the sovereign ruler over all things and other things you could say. But I submit to you that one of the first things you should say, if not the first thing, is this is who he is. He is Father. In the deepest and truest sense of the word, he is Father. That gets to the very essence of who the triune God is. He is creator, but that doesn't go deep enough. He's not creator at his most fundamental level. If that was the case, that at the most fundamental level he is creator, then he would be dependent upon his creation to really be himself. You can't be a creator without having creation. And so he'd have to create in order to really become who he is. If you say, at the deepest, what God is, is he is ruler. He's sovereign Lord over all. Well, then you still have the same problem. Then he needs something to rule over in order to be himself. And then you have to say, it's not really until he created everything and rules over everything that he really becomes who he is. Or rather, One of the most fundamental things about God at the deepest level, if not the most fundamental thing about God himself in his being is that he is a father with a son delighting in him in the spirit. Totally apart from his creation, he is that in himself. Totally apart from being ruler, he is that in himself. Put it this way, before God ever created anything, What was he doing? That will tell us who he is at the most fundamental level. 
And the answer to that is John 17, verse 24. John 17, verse 24, where Jesus tells us, For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. This is what he was doing. He was a father, eternally loving his eternally generated son. And an eternal son, eternally delighting in his eternally generating Father, all in the personal spirit. This is who he is. He is Father. This is who he is in spite of what Islam says about God. Islam says that it is beneath God to be a father. Let me quote from the Quran. It is not befitting to the majesty of Allah that he should beget a son. Islam says it's beneath the one who is in heaven. That he should be a father. That he should be begetting a son. But the beautiful truth of sacred scripture is that the being who is in heaven, who is God over all, who creates everything and who is sovereign ruler over everything, is father, is father at the most fundamental level in his own being as the triune God. And something about him that's most fully revealed in the New Testament. It's there in the Old Testament, read Isaiah 64, but it's not until the Son comes down amongst us and shows himself that we see how deep this fatherhood runs, that it runs into his eternal being. And that's why it's in the New Testament that it's emphasized that we are to pray to him as Father, address him this way. We see who he is when Christ comes down amongst us. Speak to him now as you know him to be, when you pray, say to the one who is in heaven, Father. Don't only say Father, because I don't want you to forget that that one who is your Father is in heaven. That he is the sovereign one, that he is the creator, that he is majestic, that he is holy, that he is other from you, that he's a consuming fire. He could snap you off this earth in the flip of a finger. But you must hold both of those realities together as one. That you don't lose the relational and the tenderness that you don't lose the awe and the wonder and the sense of holy fear. You know, it is ever the devil's purpose to try to separate those two from the mind of the church. And, of God, and he, doesn't, he doesn't care which one you lean towards whether you just take him as our father and leave off the who art in heaven or, or just take the who art in heaven and leave off the father. Either way, ever it is his purpose to cut the two off from one another so that the church only has one and leaves off the other. Look at his temptation of our first parents in the garden through this lens. 
you'll see something of what he's doing. First of all, remember that God reveals himself as Jehovah right away in Genesis 2 and 3. Repeatedly. Lord in all capital letters. That's the covenant name of God. The name that highlights his relational care, his bond with his people. God has called himself Lord repeatedly. Revealed that. Then the devil heard that. The devil knew that. The Lord God had not caused it to rain. The Lord God had formed man out of the dust of the ground. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. And yet when the devil, when the devil comes and tempts Eve, never once does he refer to him as Lord, as Jehovah. Because the tactic he's going to take is he's going to try to cut off the father part, the Jehovah part, the covenant part, the relational part, and just get Eve to think of him as a being in heaven who's mighty. And then the next step, cruel. And so he comes to her and says to her, Yea, hath God said, El, not Yahweh, Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Has that cruel being up there who put you on this earth said you may not eat of what you want to eat? And then, you shall not surely die. This is what's going on. That cruel being up there, he knows that the day you eat, you're going to become like him. You're going to go up, you're going to move up in the world. And he wants to keep you squashed. You're going to know good and evil if you eat. And he wants to keep you this tiny little being. That's what's going on here. He's this being far away from you in heaven who doesn't care about you at all. And now you know why Eve wanted to get so far away from his commands and from his law. I need to get away from him then. And I need to make myself great like him in order to escape from him. Now fast forward to the devil's temptations of Christ after his baptism and you'll see him flip it the other way. God has declared to all about this Christ. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now here comes the devil to tempt him right after that, doing anything in his power to break those two apart from each other, Father who is in heaven. Now this time, trying to get the Lord Christ himself, he's just called you his father, you're his son. Now forget about the in heaven part. You're his son. Surely, Surely, you could turn these stones into bread. You're hungry, aren't you? He's not, he's not going to care. Yes, he told you that you, you mayn't eat out here while you're facing me, but he's your father. You're his son. Just, just push him over. Take advantage of this relationship. He's not going to care. He loves you. You notice that every time the devil comes in all of his temptations, if thou be the son of God, then, this is what he's trying to do. 
show everybody that you're the son of God. Cast yourself down from here and he'll catch you. Yeah, it's tempting him, but, but you're his son. Take advantage of this relationship. His, his word doesn't matter all that much. You don't need to build a kingdom going the way of the cross. Go another way. I know he told you to go this way, but you're his son. He's your father. He'll get over it. That's what fathers do. You don't have to honor his word. Every answer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where Christ goes back to the word of his father who is in heaven, a sure word, the word of the king of all the universe. Every answer, Jesus is saying this. Yes, but he is my father who is in heaven and his word stands and I must bow before it. His fatherhood is not just a squishy thing void of any austerity. His word is not just a suggestion to me. He is the Lord of all and I am before his word and will honor his word as my father and I want to, out of this intimacy, the love that he has for me and I for him. Always. The devil wants us to give up one side of the equation. Because if he can, he's got us dead to rights. And it's like a cannonball in the ship. It's like a wobbly wheel on the bicycle. The whole thing is going to tumble down. If you only know him as the being in heaven, but not our Father, you know what's going to happen? You're going to start thinking of him as this being out there, cold and angry. And the reason why he gives me law it's because I have to earn my way back to him. There's no heart in that keeping of that law, but in an external way, I will, I will seek to obey it so that he doesn't come and rain fire down upon me. And if you know him only as father, but leave off the who art in heaven part, you know what's going to happen? You're going to start thinking of him like a teenage girl who has her daddy wrapped around his finger. It's a pushover. It's a word doesn't matter all that much. It's not a big deal. He'll get over it. I don't have to honor what he says. Do you know what you ought to think? When you see people going into the ditch of legalism or going into the ditch of antinomianism, the first thing you ought to think, I wonder how they think about God. Do they have this together? Our Father who art in heaven. Or are they being cut apart, separated out and holding to one or the other or more one or more the other? He's both He's both. And that must be known by us because it affects how we come to him in prayer. It affects the attitude of our heart as we approach him. It governs the whole way that we pray to him. 
We don't come to him like a teenage girl with her daddy wrapped around her finger. But that's what it means that he's father. And we don't come to him like an abused child whose father's always holding out his love like a carrot on a stick. You've got to earn it. You've got to be better to get it. We come before him knowing he is the one in heaven and all of his majesty and all of his austerity, a consuming fire. And yet who says, I am your father. And I want you to come to me, come close to me. I've redeemed you in my son. I've opened this way for you. Anytime, anywhere, you come to me with the warmth of the covenant that I've brought you into. I've bound myself to you as a father to a child. I'm always for you in everything, everything. Do you know what that privilege is? Does it ever strike you that you have access to this God 24 7? 365, rain or shine, whatever is going on at a moment's notice, you have audience with the God of all the earth. That he's opened that for you. You have no access to the President of the United States even though he's but a mere man. If you would try to get into the White House to see him, you'd be barred. Armed men would come at you, stop you, and say, what do you, who do you think you are? What, what are you doing? You think you can just come in and talk to the President of the United States? What the Lord Jesus is teaching us, you have access to one who's so much greater than any president or any king of men. God in heaven the creator and the sovereign one, king of kings, lord of lords, and that you have that right of access because he is your father. The president's children can come in to the president anytime they want because he's their father. Nobody stops them. Nobody gets out the guns and bars them from coming in. So to you before Jehovah God, This God who is so holy he can't behold evil. Who throws sinners in hell for eternity. You have access to him. You have the rights of sonship to him. Anytime, anyplace. The Bible so often describes prayer as lifting ourselves up to God. Psalm 25 verse 1. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Lamentations 3.41, let us lift up our heart unto God in heaven. Speaking of prayer, that's what happens. We go up, as it were, in our soul, into the throne room. We have access to him. We may do that anytime, anytime. Gabriel does not get out his sword and say, who do you think you are? You can't come here. Come. You have the rights of sonship. The one who is in heaven. You say, Father, the doors open up. There you are. 
There you are, but not just you. Our Father. You're not the only one who's been granted this access. It's not just me who's in that throne room. There is a body who may call him this. The God who is in heaven. Father. A household. A family of God. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Ephesians 2.19 And of the household of God. The family of God. It has to strike us that the Lord Jesus does not teach us to pray, My Father who art in heaven but our Father who art in heaven. Not that we may never pray, my Father, of course, this is a general teaching. But the Lord is teaching us something by using plural pronouns in the address and that carries through the whole of the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. He's teaching us that even when we go into that throne room alone in prayer, we ought to take our brothers and sisters in Christ with us there in our mind and in our heart, in our soul. He's our Father. And we ought to be aware of their needs as well as our own. It's not just me and my individual life with God, although that's a thing. But I have come before God for them too. And I must intercede for them before the throne of Jehovah. We are a body. And therefore we make requests before him, not only for ourselves, not only for our own families, but before the body of of Jesus Christ. How are you doing with that? Are you mindful of their needs? Is there truly an hour in your hour, fathers? Requests for the weak, requests for the strong, for those who are in rebellion for those who are submissive, for those who have holes in their thinking in this area, for those who seem to have no holes anywhere, for those who are rich, for those who are poor, for those who are burdened, for those who are joyous, for those who are old, and for those who are young. By this, by teaching us this, Christ keeps us united before the throne of grace, especially in a congregation in the whole universal body of Jesus Christ too, but especially in a congregation. Without this hour, our unity can start to become formal, outward, not a conscious, living, spiritual unity. Without intercession for one another, our unity isn't experienced like it ought. But intercession for one another is a real thing, a spiritual thing. We remember one another. Without that, that person can simply become that person who happens to sit over there for three hours on a Sunday with me. And that's really about it. But with intercession, 
That person is a brother, that person is a sister in Jesus Christ who before the throne of God says, Father, along with me. I bring him and I bring her in my mind and in my soul to the throne of Jehovah as I come in. They're sinners. They're burdened ones who need his grace too. I owe it to my brothers and sisters to pray that way before God. To recognize that I'm not alone in this household of faith. But there are stones in the building too. We're together in this dwelling place. After all, both he and I have this sonship have the God of all the earth as Father. Have this access. By the grace of Jesus Christ alone. The Catechism says God has become our Father for Christ's sake. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says He created us together in Christ Jesus. In Him. In Him alone, I may call Him Father. In Him alone, I have the privilege of praying this way. And this access opened up to me 24-7. And it's the same way for my brother and for my sister. They didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. And they're sitting there not earning it. But in Him, in Him, who in himself is the only one who naturally had the right to call him father. The one who alone has the right of access can walk through the door anytime naturally. He alone is the true son. One of the ways that the Old Testament leads God's people to look forward to the coming of the true Son, Jesus Christ, is by leading the Old Testament saints to be constantly asking the question, who is the true Son? Adam is called God's Son. But he falls into sin and rebels and shows himself not to be the true son. And then later God calls Israel his son. Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son. I say to the Pharaoh, let my son go. But Israel is not the true son either. He rebels in the wilderness and shows himself to be an adopted son, just like Adam is an adopted son. David Solomon are called sons of God. The kings in Israel are called sons, but even the kings, even the greatest of those kings is rebellious against God. Think of David's sins and Solomon's sins. They're not the true son either. And all of these only have access to God in the true son. Who is he? When is he coming? And then finally we read the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and we hear God himself say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Here he is, finally. And all of you can be sons in him. He alone has the right to look up to me and say, Father, he shows you that I in my very being am Father and that my meaning is to take you into this father-son relationship in him.
And what's more, Jesus knows this about himself. There's no doubt about it in himself. And so though nobody else all Old Testament long ever prayed this way, he prays, Father, Father, Father. Father, I thank thee that thou hearest my prayers. Father, if it be possible, take this cup. The devil never calls God Jehovah, Lord, or any other term of intimacy. And Jesus never not calls him by terms of intimacy. Except once. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That you might never be forsaken of him. That you might have the rights of sonship in him. He had to become what you are by nature, alienated from God, enemy of God, with your sins upon himself. And he had to give off Leave off his sonship, his natural sonship, that you might be able in him to be able to look up to the one who is in heaven. Say, my father, that you might have the right to come into his throne room anytime, any place, anywhere a nuclear bomb could go off. And at the same moment, one of his children cries out, Father, and all of his attention is there upon his child in him. In him. For through him, Ephesians 2.18, through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. As Christ did that for me, he did that for you, he did that for my brothers and sisters in Christ, how then do I dare enter into his throne room and leave them outside as, they, as though they don't matter, as though I have the right to this place, but they don't, as though their needs can be left outside the door? He's made us one. For he is our peace who hath made both one and broke down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. Our Father, who art in heaven. But as much, beloved, as I am aware of my brothers and my sisters' needs, and lay them before our Father, while I am there in the throne room of Jehovah God, this address does mean the Lord is telling us, I may also come individually to take part of what is the sweetest benefit of being allowed in to the presence of God himself in this most marvelous way. And that is to simply be with him the one who is in heaven as father face to face. The heart of this access to God as father is simply this, that it's access to God as father. It's fellowship with him 
Not just to lay down my requests, not just that I, I come in with my list, but that I be with him for a while, that I come apart, be shut in the door behind me, that I might fellowship with him. I come in to have him. And my joy as his son is not only bound up in the fact that I can make my request to him, but I can be with my father. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? Is that the joy of your prayer life? You say with Asaph, whom have I in heaven but thee, and there's nothing on earth I desire beside thee. Let me ask you this. If prayer was not commanded, And if God came to you and said, you don't have to pray again the rest of your life, I won't make you feel guilty for it. You'll never feel that tinge of guilt in your conscience anymore the rest of your life. I'll still grant you what you need for body and soul, everything. You never have to pray again the rest of your days. Would you still pray? Simply to have him to be consciously with him? If you understand something of the marvel of what Jesus is teaching us here to address God this way, what that really means, then you'll answer that question, yes, yes, I would still pray. Because I want him, I want to be with him God of all the earth, who is my Father. How dull we can be sometimes to the wonders that God gives to us. If a little girl breaks her dollhouse to start weeping for the broken dollhouse, And even if her mom comes in to the room and says, Daughter, you won't believe it. Your uncle just died and he willed $23 million to you. That little girl's going to keep on crying for her broken dollhouse because she has no idea, she doesn't understand the the magnanimity of what's just been said to her, of, what, of what's been given to her. Are you like that sometimes? Me? I am. You don't realize marvel of what has been granted to us in Jesus Christ. May this sermon add a little peace to us realizing it by His grace. Grace shown to us, wretched sinners. It's no wonder the apostle prays for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, that you may be able to comprehend, because we're so dull, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the depth and breadth and length and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with the fullness of God. What grace has been shown to us. Creatures of the dust and wretched sinners. He taught us 
He allowed us. He called us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven. Amen. Lord God, add thy blessing to our word. That is thy word. And what is not thy word, may it fall off the end of this pulpit. What is thy word, be ushered into our minds and hearts and souls. Fill us with joy and delight and wonder and awe and reverence at who thou art and what thou hast done. In Jesus' name, amen.